Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. And this time around, we're focusing on the 90s. It was the decade of Clinton, Chrétien, the OJ trial, Friends, Seinfeld, Michael Jordan, the Blue Jays, and dial-up internet. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, remember how long that took? And musically, the Seattle sound was a nice palate cleanser for rock fans who had been feeling ignored. But pop music stayed strong as well. It was a golden age also for hip-hop, and a time when Canadian music dominated the world, led by Shania Twain, Brian Adams, Celine Dion, and Alanis Morissette. Mm -hmm. But the biggest event of the decade, Christopher, happened on June 29th, 1996 at Tiger Stadium in Detroit, and it had Uh, nothing to do with baseball. Cut to co-host weeping openly (laughs) it was the return of the power the majesty the blood the fire the questionable lyrics and the power chords oh the cheese of kiss and that's when the long-awaited reunion tour kicked off and i saw them just a few months after that and i pretty much lost my mind well i can attest to the latter fact (laughs) but i'm wondering why you waited so long why didn't you go to detroit for the opening uh, night of the show you know what that's a great question but you know what's also very interesting (laughs) is i have video um, because I've collected the entire history box set, which is basically a video history of anything that Kiss has ever made, right? And that reunion show in Detroit, in the very, very first song, they were playing one of their most popular songs, especially if you're a Kiss fan. It's called Deuce. And three quarters of the way through, at the peak of the song, they totally lost track of where they were in the song, and the song crumbled. It disintegrated, and it was. <laughs> oh, no. And for about ten seconds, it was a train wreck. And it's actually kind of funny because what happens is the drummer Peter Chris, who hadn't played with the band for a long time, just completely lost his place in the song. And they all look at each other, and Peter Chris's eyes get as wide as pie plates. Right? It's very. It's a very funny <laughs> moment. So I'm kind of glad I wasn't wow. there. I would have probably like my stomach would have fell out because this is what we've been waiting for. Thankfully, the rest of the show was good, and thankfully, by the time they got to Toronto, the show was fantastic. I loved it. That's a good story, <laughs> and you weren't even there, Tom. On this episode, we will feature interviews with some of the biggest stars of the decade. Yep, Jewel talks about her huge breakthrough album. Victoria Beckham explains the massive appeal of the Spice Girls. Ed and Steve from Bare Naked Ladies try to contain themselves as their career takes off. And we'll also hear from Matchbox 20, Tom Cochran, Natalie Merchant, Amanda Marshall, and the Goo Goo Dolls. The only thing that's missing is Chumbawamba, but I promise I will find that interview (laughs) one day when I have absolutely nothing better to do. Okay, pencil me in for busy on that one. (laughs) Um, Plus, we'll share some 90s cool song facts about the likes of TLC, Boys to Men, Nirvana, the Fugees, salt and Pepper, and Oasis. Oh, you're going to love the Oasis cool song fact, Christopher, because it's about their drummer. And it's someone who is related to one of your favorite drummers. Hmm. All right, let's get started. That's the Goo Goo Dolls from 1998 and their biggest hit, Iris. What a majestic, huge sounding record. Yeah, indeed. The Goo Goo Dolls didn't think of themselves as a pop act, but you know... It's audiences who tend to decide those things in the end. In this chat from 1995, they talk about the impact of the song Name, which had just hit the charts at the time. 
How does it feel now to suddenly have like the commercial, like you had commercial success in certain circles, but now it's become, you know, you're sit- sitting in here is, is obvious to the fact because we're a pretty mainstream radio station. Yeah, it's strange that a band like us would get played on a, on a very, I was listening to the station yesterday and I was like, wow. Yeah. It was very, I thought, I thought it was, I thought it was very wild. I mean, you, that a band like us would be played. Yeah, but when a song like Name came out, did you, when you put it together, you think, well, this is one that, you know, this this could do it for us. No. Or were you even thinking about no, that? No, I wasn't. No, I never think about what's the consequences of uh, my writing when I'm writing, you know. I, I, you can't. It'll just, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll destroy what you're doing, you know. So, so I sort of leave the outside world behind, you know, whenever I'm. Whenever I'm writing. Do you guys now have creative control over all your product, really? We pretty much always have. And that was a conversation that we had had with them. If you, you, know, if you, if you want us on your label, please have faith in, in our abilities. I don't tell you how to sell records. Don't tell me how to make them. Well, sometimes you know. we do. Okay, sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, but, but they never, ever, ever, they really understand music and they really, you know, and that's rare in the music business these days to find people who, who actually do understand music, who are uh, aware of the artistic merit of something, uh, irregardless of the commercial viability of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Although it don't hurt. Certainly having a hit does not hurt. No, it makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? It certainly does. But it does is... it put the pressure on you for the next thing? Nah. You know? No? Nah. nah. It's all about writing songs. Yeah. You know, it is. We've been doing that for a long time, so... I guess it's more important to please yourself because if you're just doing it to please somebody else, it really oh. isn't worth it. You, I mean, you'll have to play the damn thing every night and it'll be horrible. It's hard, yeah. it's hard enough when you like the stuff. Yeah. Is yeah. there going to get to be a day when you're going to go, oh man, when people are yelling out, nah, nah, maybe nah, tonight. They do that now. <laughs> Could be tonight. They do that now. But, <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, I'm really grateful for, for the success of Name, you know? So it's, so, it's, uh, so it's a pleasure to play it. That's named from 1995, the first time most of us had heard from the Goo Goo Dolls. You know, I really like Johnny Resnick. I think he's a true artist, and they had some great songs over the years. I remember he performed live on our morning show in the late 90s, and he just gave it all that he had. Like, it meant so much to him to get the song's meaning to come across. The Spice Girls and Wannabe from 1996, and boy, that kicked off Spice Mania. It was a fun time, wasn't it? It was. You know, love them or hate them, well, I actually like many of those songs, and I think they still sound, like they still fly out of the radio and out of your speakers. You know what I don't know is who wrote those songs? Do they have professional writers working on them, or do they co-write them themselves? As you'll hear in this clip, Victoria Beckham often refers to the fact that they wanted to um, write their own music and create their own songs. And so I looked into that, and they do get a songwriting credit on every single one of their big hits. Well, I, as they should, because I think an artist like the Spice Girls, who has such a strong connection with their fans, really understands better than anyone else what it is those fans want to hear about. Yeah, exactly. Posh Spice talks about being compared to other acts and the importance of getting respect. I mean, we think we came across a lot of preconceptions when we first started up, firstly because we're female, um, and secondly because, you know, we are a, basically a girl band, and we think that, you know, people like to, you know, cap, you know, they like to pigeonhole you into saying you're manufactured, you can't possibly write your own material and all the rest of it, so we did have to scream up quite loud, but um, at the end of the day, it looks like people have been listening, so... 
Have you have you found any cynicism here in North America yet since you've been here? Because s- lately there's been a number of bands, British bands, coming at us that seem to just explode onto our music scene. Not so much your music scene, but onto our music scene. First we had Wet, Wet, Wet. Then we had uh, Take That. Then we had Oasis. And now we've got... Now we've got you guys. Do you find it's tough to make sure that people realize that you're different than some of these other bands? I think that if we spend, you know, I mean, the amount of people basically that say to us, oh, are you the next Take That? Are you the next, I know, New Kids on the Block? If, you know, basically, if we, every time someone said that to us, if we sort of like had to say, no, 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 we're not, and if we really homed it in, we'd be saying it all the time. I think all we're saying is, you know, listen li- listen to us, you know, accept us for what we are. We're not Take That. We're not uh, New Kids on the Block. We're Spice Girls. We are something a little bit different. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, if people want to categorise you into being something else, then they can do it. But at the end of the day, we're just here having a laugh, you know, singing about issues that we feel passionate about. And if people want to get on our spicy vibe and enjoy it as much as we do, then that's great. If not, obviously, we're not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Girl power is something that I see coming up when when ba- when you're being described by different uh, different publications and stuff like that. That the girl power is something that you're you're into. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, it, you know, it's about equality, basically. Yeah. You know, we want men and women to be equal. You know, we think you know as far as girl power goes, if you want to wear your short skirt, wear your short skirt. If you want to wear your wonder bra and your mascara, do it, but do it with conviction. Do it because you want to be dressed like that, and also have something to say. Don't just rely on the way you look. Accept the way you are and have a laugh. That's the, that's the most important thing. That's what we've always said. As soon as we stop having fun, stop having a laugh, is the day we'll give it all up because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. And I think wherever you're from, America, Canada, I don't know, Spain, Britain, wherever you're from, everybody wants to have fun, really. That's Victoria Beckham, a.k.a. Posh Spice, right from the beginning of Spice Mania from 1996. And it's always so interesting to hear these artists from the time when they're right in the eye of the storm of their fame. I love that. Yeah. Well, we have lots of that. This is the 90s edition of Famous Lost Words. Let's go to 1997. That's Push, Matchbox 20 from 1997 on Famous Lost Words as we celebrate the 90s. Here, Matchbox 20, talk about the quick success of the song Push. When we finished Push, and it first came out, and it was on MTV, and we thought... We're rock stars now. This is it. We're you know we have a song on MTV. We've sold almost a million records. We're complete rock stars now. And then we got around like five or six million records on the first record. And we're just like, we have no clue what we're doing. And we're definitely <laughs> not rock stars. Okay, you know. Oh, I really like Rob Thomas. And we have a great interview with Matchbox Twenty in interview five oh eight, the same episode that features Stevie Nicks and Motorhead. <laughs> There's a super group in the making. <laughs> This is an interesting interview clip, Tom. Here, Rob Thomas talks about the importance of the song 3AM. Uh, 3AM is, is our flagship song as a band. We had, uh, the, it was the only song that got left over from the, the local band that we were in before this band. Every, we, we, we got rid of everything, and, and I rewrote an entire new album like right before we went in to make yourself or someone like you. The only thing that carried over was 3AM. That's, that's been around forever. Um, and it was, it was written... I originally wrote it about... Uh, the time I had a lot of time with me and my mom while she had she had cancer she was going through Hodgkin's disease and uh, and it was just about that period like I was really young I was like maybe 12 and I had I was taking care of her so it was just kind of like you know my experience with that at that time
That's Rob Thomas in Matchbox 20 with 3AM, a big song with a powerful backstory. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Up next on this special 90s edition, Amanda Marshall gets a boost from Elton John, and Jewel goes from living in a van to wearing a $14,000 dress to the Grammys. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, the 90s edition. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Let's go to the summer of 1996. From 1996, that's Amanda Marshall and Birmingham from her debut album. And what a good one that was. I love that song. And I did not write that song, just so you know. <laughs> well, I know, and you did so much work with Amanda on that first album, so we want, I want to talk to you about that once we hear this clip. Tom, Amanda's first album was a bigger success than anyone involved could have foreseen. Mm-hmm. In this interview from the early days of that success, she talks to Dale Smith about the joy of a celebrity endorsement, or two. Now, the new single out is Dark Horse, and yes. is, is that a coincidence? Was that a planned thing, or did that have anything to do with a certain artist appearing <laughs> on a certain Rosie O'Donnell show? <laughs> That was it was not a it was not a planned thing it was it was total coincidence and it was really funny because we had already uh, selected the next single so it was kind of it was it was neat it was nice to have your choice validated in that particular manner it was so you had cool. made that choice for the next single yeah we had already chosen the single and, and then Elton uh, went on on TV and and kind of endorsed it um, it was kind of cool it was really really cool uh, did you see have you seen the episode have you seen the tape of the I, episode I yet? have indeed seen the episode he uh, he actually phoned me about a week after that Didn't we were up in Banff and. Uh, Quite unexpectedly, he he uh, he called, and uh, it was it was really cool. We talked about, and we of course have since have done the show since then. So it was it was nice to talk to her about it, to talk to him about it. It was very very cool, and it was very genuine on his part, which was nice. It's amazing. I'm watching it at home, just out of the blue. I, it was yeah. And she <laughs> says, "Who are the artists that you listen to?" And he mentioned Terry hmm, somebody or Lewis, other. I think it was Lewis Taylor. Or was it Lewis yeah. Taylor? That's it. Yeah. And, and then he goes and and Amanda Marshall, and I'm like. Excuse me? Yeah. yeah. Man, did he say Amanda Marshall? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yeah, and then he starts saying, he, he knew that he knows your CD. He goes, I said, there's a song on there. I think it's track four. And sure enough, I know, it is. it is track four. You know, it's, know. Called, you know, it's called Dark Horse. And if, uh, <laughs> if they ever think you release it, it's a number one single. I'm thinking, and, you know, Rosie knew Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was very cool. It was a neat week all around. It was a good week. It was funny because when that happened, when he was on the air, we had just flown in from Australia. So, and we'd been working like for a month solid. So we hadn't had a good night sleep in a while so everyone was sleeping in nobody had a wake-up call and my mom called me at like six o'clock in the morning hysterical saying Elton John's on TV talking about you I was like what I'm, I'm not even conscious go away but it was very cool <laughs> that's got to be unbelievable uh you've had I guess this is the album has succeeded beyond has beyond your dreams I mean everybody thinks that oh man this will be the one this will be a great album and it'll right. do well for me but right. surely to God somewhere along the way you must go Man, this is doing better than I thought it would. <laughs> well, it's it's cool. I mean, stuff like the Elton John thing is really nice because it's one of the only moments that you have that gives you a genuine pause where you go, wow, that's really cool. I couldn't have possibly predicted that. Some stuff, you know, I mean, the, the being like the TV stuff, doing the, the TV shows that you kind of, you know, you hope for. Um is never is never what you think it's going to be because inevitably it's seven o'clock in the morning you're barely conscious you've done a show the night before and it's just 
it turns into you're tr- you're trying you're trying to maintain that level of excitement, but it, inevitably there is a little bit of oh my god, I can't believe we have to do this at six o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, I I really I could just do some sleeping right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you're excited, but it's still it's part of the tour. Um, but it, it's great. I mean, it's genuinely. It's really gratifying that the record's done as well as it has because it's allowed us to continue to tour, which I love doing. I love being able to sing for people every night. And the fact that I get to see Australia, I mean, you know, in oh, yeah. Italy, I mean, it's amazing. On it's the great. company tab. On the company tab. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all-inclusive Maeva tours. Exactly. Wow. It's, it's too cool. <laughs> well, that's outstanding. Now, wasn't there a... You were supposed to do a song, and you may have already done it for a soundtrack for a... Is it a Kevin Costner film or something? Yeah, yeah, we did that. That was, that was a few months ago. The, yeah. uh, it was for Tin Cup. Yeah. And, uh, what happened yeah. with that? That was supposed to be the big thing, but it's been overshadowed by your album. Yeah, it was It was funny because I got this call from Warner Brothers, and they said, we've got this movie coming out. It's the new Kevin Costner movie. We're looking for a voice that's going to be compatible with this song. Um, and we think, you know, Don Was is going to be producing the track, and he's heard your record, and he thinks you're the voice, so do you have time and we did we were right in the middle of the tour so we made time um the biggest thing for me out of that whole experience was the opportunity to work with don was because he's been a musical hero of mine forever Mm. um and and for me that was that was like it was such a great opportunity um and we had a great time doing it it was lots of fun the best thing about making this record for me was that i got to work with musicians that i grew up listening to on the radio kenny aronoff and lee sklar you know all those guys are people who played on records that i bought when i was like 12 and to sit in a studio with them and you know and 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 not direct them but to to work with them as as sort of an equal is amazing um working with don was was an incredible experience for me mostly because you never really know how it's going to turn out you never know if the person that you idolize is going to turn out to be a jerk you know and and you walk in and you think this could completely shatter all of my illusions about this person and for the most part um i've had a great experience this last year because all of the people that i've met um, have been have been great. You know, Don was it was the best recording experience I've ever had. We had a great time. It was we we did it in like two days. Sat around. You know, he takes his shoes off in the studio, and we're we're sitting around laughing. And, and I'm thinking, this guy made records that I love. I mean, these are records that I have in my collection and I listen to every day. And now my world is shattered because his feet stink. His feet stink. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. We did this. We just did a show in Boston. It was a festival date. And it was all the spin doctors were on it. And, but the the person that I really wanted to meet was Stevie Nicks. And uh, we, her manager came over after our set and she said, oh, I hear you'd really like to meet Stevie. She's in the dressing room. And I, I found myself going, well, no, 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 it's okay. You know, I don't, it's all right. I don't want to bother. And I went in and I was just a babbling idiot. And I'm standing there. And you know, when you're talking and, and you're thinking, you're having this whole conversation with yourself in your head and you're thinking, I can't believe I'm being such a goof. <laughs> You know, and then you try more time trying try, to back yeah, up. Yeah, trying to back up. It was the worst. And she was so gracious and so just totally classy about it, and so collected. And and I thought this is great. You know, this is a woman that is has been a hero of mine forever, and it's so nice to meet somebody who's who's totally together and really what they seem. That's Dark Horse 1997, Amanda Marshall, just one of seven singles from that album. you got to love Amanda's irrepressible energy in that clip. And Christopher, I know that you wrote a number of songs with Amanda. Tell us about your experience on working on that first album and, and your time working with her generally. Well, when she arrived in Los Angeles to work with Dave Tyson, who produced her record, um, who was my songwriting partner for many of the things for Alanis' record, and... Um, 
she irrepressible energy is exactly the right term. She was just bouncing along in her sneakers with her hair springing up and down and this wonderful, engaging smile on her face. She was so much fun to work with and she was so uh, excited about what we were doing. It was really interesting when she sat down to do the work and focus on just the singing. It's like the, the wisdom of the song Ages started to come through her voice and you saw a whole different personality. Um, she is really uh, a remarkable talent and uh, as a writer and as a singer and of course as a, as a performer as well. And it was, it was really, really fun to work with her. And you talked about a moment in which you had written a song called Beautiful Goodbye and um, you left it with her overnight and then the next day she comes into the studio and what happens? Well, first of all, we didn't think that this was the right song for her, but she was like, I'd love to try this song. Mm. We're like, well, okay, if you insist, you know, <laughs> we were being like the old guys, right? Yeah. Because we thought the song was like for, you know, for a Joe Cocker or somebody like that. And, um, and she came back the next day and literally, I think, you know, eight bars into the song, I'm sitting side by side on a bench with her in this little home studio. I looked over at Dave and I mouthed the words, are you recording? And he went, yes. <laughs> and I think some of that performance uh, is, is what's in the finished version. That's I mean, amazing. It, it was hair on end the whole time. She was fantastic. That's great. You know, it is funny. Those songs were, what, a good 25 years ago. And I just looked her up. Amanda is not even 50 years old yet. She's 49. So I hope that we're going to see her again on stage very soon once the world opens up. I'm looking forward to seeing her live in concert because that is one thing that I haven't had the pleasure of doing. Yeah, this is a comeback I think a lot of people would show up for. Absolutely. Including the songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Famous Lost Words as we remember the 1990s. From 1997, that's Who Will Save Your Soul and Jewel. Raised in Homer, Alaska, Jewel performed with her dad where she worked on her yodeling skills before studying opera <laughs> at an arts academy in Michigan. It's basically everybody's path to success, right? <laughs> After honing her performance skills in the San Diego folk scene, she released her debut album, Pieces of Me, at 21. The 12 million selling album made her an overnight star built on her first single, Who Will Save Your Soul, a philosophical folk song that she wrote. In this interview clip, that same thoughtful artist is in evidence. Let me get the story behind a couple of the hit singles off of Pieces of You. Um, who Will Save Your Soul? I wrote that when I was about, I don't know, 16 or 17. Probably the, I don't know, first or second song I ever wrote. I never thought anybody would hear it. I was just traveling around a lot. I hitchhiked through Mexico at the time. And I uh, realized how many people are, are taught that nobody can know them better than somebody else. And we have to go to God to be forgiven and, and therapists to be understood. And very little of a, our childhoods are spent on teaching us how to understand our emotions or how to relate to one another, how to be creative or approach life as though it were not work and things like that that are crucial because that's how you fulfill dreams. Um... And so instead we look to other people to kind of make us happy or not. That's some pretty deep thinking for a 16 or 17-year-old. I was a weird kid. <laughs> How does it feel when you're, when you're at something like the Grammy Awards and you're, uh, and you're, and you're, and you're backstage with everybody? Do you like, uh, do you, do you like walk around? Are you still a fan of some people? You walk over, oh my God, look who's standing over there. 
I couldn't believe, you know, I met Elvis Costello. I was beside myself, you know, like freaked out. I was like, there's Eric Clapton beside me, oh my God, you know. <laughs> Things like that, you know, I'm just kind of a farm kid from Alaska that gets to keep playing dress up. And people let me make a living at what I love doing. And it's like a big joke. You know, it's really hard to comprehend. I still see myself with dirty hands in Alaska, you know what I mean? Driving tractors, wondering what I'll do when I'm older. Um, and it's really hard to get over that image of myself. So when somebody gives you a $14,000 dress tour, you're like, all right, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> but it's really hard to comprehend that, you know, 14 billion people are watching you. Um, and I guess it never, it always should be hard to comprehend. My life is kind of, it's a great dream right now. <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, that's good, because that kind of attitude is what's going to keep you, it's going to keep your your feet on the ground, because if you start believing your own press, well... Yeah, or other people's press or any of it, it's, yeah. just, it's a funny, it's a funny game. Yeah, you can get into trouble. Next thing I know, you're the next Terrence Trent Darby. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I always use him as the crutch, because he had the biggest attitude I'd ever run into when his first and second album came out. Yeah, that's always struck me as very funny, I and mean, I really feel blessed to, to be given this dream. A lot of people work really, really hard to help me with it um, at no real benefit of their own. You know, the record label, a lot of people, a lot of radio stations. And it's, you know, it doesn't, people don't have to take the time out of their lives to help me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really a, a treat. You Were Meant For Me, Jewel from 1996. Such an interesting person with a fascinating history and lots of talent. Uh, that's our conversation with Jewel from 1997. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and this week it's all about the 1990s. Tom, what's next? Well, Christopher, we cover the Canadian contingent with Tom Cochran in 1991, just as Life as a Highway is carrying him to the top of the charts. And we have a mid-90s chat with Ed and Steve from Bare Naked Ladies as they reminisce about when they first met. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, our special 90s edition. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, who's not only Canada's original VJ, he's also an author. I'd highly recommend his book, Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music. The foreword was written by his buddy Mike Myers. Christopher also has a new album out called Same River Twice, which is excellent, and his song Black Velvet was recently inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Now, back to the 90s, specifically the fall of 1991. Life is a Highway, an anthemic song from Tom Cochran. Well, Tom, you remember the 90s. I have it written down, so <laughs> that's how we deal with these things. <laughs> In this interview clip, Tom Cochran talks with Denise Donlin about striving and surviving and why he identifies as a singer-songwriter more than a rocker. It just feels like everything's going right for you right now. Yeah, this is a major role here. You know, the universe is unfolding. As you know, it should, yeah, yes. Just, uh, it's real nice when, when things fall into place like that. This is, what, 10 records in, I guess, about 17 years for you now at this point. Was there ever a time when you felt like packing it in, like it's just not going right? I mean, there might, there's got to be downs with the ups. Once or twice a week. Nah, come on. <laughs> no, it's... it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, I feel real, real lucky and privileged to uh, to be able to do what I I love for a living, and I've gotten to that point now. I think when you're when you're starting out, and you know, I think when you're, you're you know twenty one, twenty two, you take a lot for granted, and you figure that 
you know, uh, you're immortal in a lot of ways. I think everybody goes through that stage. And, um, you know, I really enjoy what I do now. I, I You know, for the first time, I think, um, you know, the last five years I've enjoyed performing, never as much as now. I'm very comfortable with it. Um, I I love my fans. You know, these people out here, you know, the fans are always re- have been really supportive, but even more and more in the last, you know, uh, um, the, you know the last couple of albums it's just been it's been great so i feel privileged to be able to do what i do for a living i mean it's um you know if 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 you can do what you really love for a living then i think god's smiling on you so there you uh, go yeah yeah this morning i was reading it in the in the globe following the show you did in toronto and they, they talked about you know you being in the same ballpark a little bit with you know the legacy of canadian performers uh chilliwack kim mitchell on and on and on who uh, are really huge in in canada and um i know that this crowd right here would be really thrilled if, if suddenly we had yet another ambassador in a major way south of the border there does that i mean how do you feel about all that is it well, I feel that, that, in a sense, that's true. There's been a lot of great Canadian rock and roll bands. We've lasted longer. I don't know if people keep track of this sort of thing, but, you know, I, I've been around for 12 years doing it, and, and the fans have always been there supporting it. The media's, media always hasn't recognized that, you know, So, and it's built as well. You know, it's been amazing. But I think for about six or seven years there, Red Rider was a real strong touring entity. And now this band's proven to be a, t- a strong touring entity so uh we stood the test of time you know uh, that way we're survivors and in a sense in the states you know uh, uh there's you know songs like lunatic fringe are, are pretty pretty big aor songs down there it's one of the top five aor songs requested aor songs of all times that's oh, album it was radio number two just number after two. money yeah. pink floyd yeah. yeah and um so it's it's uh so we have a, a strong cult following, more so than some of those bands. And but they're they're great bands. You know, Chilliwack was a wonderful band. I mean, there's there's a strong legacy there. I don't. My heritage is a, is as a singer songwriter. So I come I'm coming through the back door with this the rock thing. I relate more to kind of Neil Young in a sense that Neil can write those beautiful acoustic folk rock oriented songs. Plus, he can rock and roll with the best of them. <laughs> and he can and, melt your fillings yeah, next and, day. Yeah, and that's, that's what I relate to. I think the rock part is the therapy part, you know. <laughs> if I had to get in front of an audience and do two hours with acoustic guitar, I think I'd lose my mind. You know, I'd probably have an ulcer by the end of the week, you know. <laughs> but so the rock and roll part is, is a great release, and it's a lot of fun. And it's, you know, the the kid inside of all of us, I think, wants to do that. So that that's the boy inside the man part, you know. Mm. So my heritage is a bit different than a lot of those artists, you know, in that I do have that that folk rock uh, uh, heritage behind me and I relate to the Bob Dylans and the Leonard Cohens and the and, and you know those those artists those are the ones that really got me hooked on this business wow it's so interesting that Tom Cochran relates more to the folk movement than he does to the rock world but his biggest songs are definitely rock oriented and I didn't know that about Lunatic Fringe did you like that it was one of the most requested songs on American rock radio at that time of the interview, so 1991, which is a good almost 10 years after that song came out, Lunatic Friend. No, I had no idea. You can hear more of that interview in episode 312 of Famous Lost Words. Lying in bed, just like Brian Wilson
Brian Wilson, 1992, Bare Naked Ladies from their debut album, Gordon. You know, Tom, the ladies built their career slowly but steadily starting in 1991, and they hit a major peak in 1998 with One Week, a Billboard number one hit. But the Bare Naked Ladies have been built to last, maintaining a loyal following and continuing to record and tour. This chat is from 1994, and they talk about, as usual, plenty of different subjects, including getting long-sought recognition in the United States. Now, you just barely get in the door here, and already you've got a request for a signature on your disc. How much is this happening to you now, guys? Quite a bit. Yeah. We just signed some autographs in Bagel Works across the street. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were in, in the car... Uh, stopped while uh, I was actually on the phone doing an interview with the CBC yeah and uh, three girls came over and uh, asked for the autograph so it's it's, it's picking up again life is looking uh, like I should be packing my sharpie you guys have known each other since grade four uh, since grade since four? Uh, 1935 actually <laughs> Steve and I have been good friends we spent a lot of time in school over the last 40 yeah the 40 depression years, so. was hard on both of us yeah, oh, yeah. but <laughs> No, we, we have known each other since uh, grade four. Steve was a grade above me, and you just don't, you know, you don't hang out with guys in grade five when you're in grade four, because oh, okay. they're worlds apart. Yeah. So uh, so how does it feel? How does it affect your, because do you guys still live in Scarborough? Is that what you call home now, or uh, no, in we're Toronto? In, we're in Toronto yeah. now. Yeah. Proper now. How does it affect your relationships with the people that you grew up with? Do they treat you differently, whether you act differently or not? Well, I, I mean, I know I have a, a really good, solid core of friends who who see me the same way they know that i've gone through a lot of changes but they have as well you know and our lifestyles have certainly changed a lot but friends are friends you know and they some of them stay and some of them go and you make new friends as you go along yeah. make new friends but keep the old one is silver and the other gold that's it the song we just in grade six but uh, are you going to be recording it at any time soon? You never know. We could record it right now. Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver and the other gold. No, it's not. This is Laura Marie's. It kind of reminds me of that paddle one, you know? Dip, dip, and swing that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah not bad. Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. Does the States call you guys yet? Are you picking up there because there's so many bands who have started up here in Canada and then the way into the States seems to be through alternative radio or college radio almost, you know? Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, the problem we had on um, on Gordon in the U.S., we, I mean, we sold 100,000 copies or 110 or something like that in the U.S., which isn't bad. I mean, it's a tenth of a million, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the success that it was here in Canada. And I think it's because we were too alternative for mainstream radio and too mainstream for alternative radio. Uh, so we kind of sat in this netherland. But this netherland, since Gordon came and went, uh, has been kind of filled by this, what they're calling AAA format in the U.S., which is adult album alternative, or some configuration of those three words. Or American Automobile Association. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We seem to fit into that quite nicely, so there seems to be a, a niche in American radio for us now. So we'll see what happens with that. Because that's the kind of thing that's been supporting acts like Crash Test Dummies and Sarah McLaughlin and, yeah. and the other Canadian acts are doing pretty well. You spent your uh, you spend a bit of time down the stage. Do you find they want to pigeonhole you almost into a certain category? Like you get in there. That's that's true everywhere though. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but we've had amazing success with our live shows down there, and we've done mm-hmm. quite extensive touring and, and sold out just about everywhere we've gone. We do really well in New York and a couple other centers, and it's promising. It's been one week since you looked at me. 
One week, Bare Naked Ladies from 1998, a massive song. You know, we have so many interviews with Bare Naked Ladies, and it's interesting to hear them at this stage of their career. They had a big hit with the first album, Gordon, and we're hoping to do just as well with their second album, which is where this interview lies. Little did they know that it would hit really big four years later after this interview with One Week, which hit number one in the U.S. and made them a regular touring act in the States. It really kind of sealed their fate and their career. By the way, you can listen to my 2019 chat with Ed Robertson in episode 408. Let's go back and hear some of that old stuff, too. I, they, they always give a great interview. Absolutely. So I'm going to have to dig up some more of the old interviews because I guarantee you we have a lot. It's like with Rush. It always helps when the band that's really big at the moment just basically lives down the street. You know, Rush, <laughs> Rush were from the area. So all they had to do was drive across 401, hit Young Street, and they were at our studios. Um, Bare Naked Ladies were from Scarborough. Um, they, they actually moved in Toronto around the time of the interview we just heard. So they were there. They could come see us at any time. Here's the best one. Gordon Lightfoot lived literally feet from our studios. So we have so many Gordon Lightfoot <laughs> interviews. He would just walk. It was, honest to God, Christopher, it wasn't even half a block. It was like an eighth of a block away. And when I ran into him a few years ago, on Young Street in Toronto. It was right in front of his office building as I was walking to our old studios on Young Street. Oh, that's great. Still much more to come on this 90s edition of Famous Lost Words, including a cover version that was so good, the original artist thanked the group that covered it. We also have cool song facts about Boys to Men, TLC, The Fugees, Nirvana, and more. Plus, what eight-minute song is the longest single ever to hit the top 10? We'll tell you next. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, the 90s edition. Don't forget, in two weeks' time, it's our annual Canada Day edition as Canadian artists tell their best stories about their hometowns. From Randy Bachman to Chantal Kreviazic to Michael Bublé. Also, how Blue Rodeo honed their chops in the Big Apple before they returned to conquer Canada. How this nation's diversity helped forge Nelly Furtado's unique sound. And how Maestro Fresh West helped blaze the trail for Canadian hip-hop. Plus, Triumph, Powder Blues, Streetheart, Northern Pikes, Parachute Club, and many others. Now, back to our 90s edition. That's Natalie Merchant from 95 and Carnival. Tom, between her stint with 10,000 Maniacs and her solo work, Natalie Merchant's unique voice graced almost a dozen chart hits. Here in this 1995 chat, as she was promoting her first solo album, Natalie talks about establishing an identity outside of 10,000 Maniacs and the importance of a manager with integrity. So you're onto your, uh, now is this your first, this is your first solo release. And uh, the the question I got to ask is just to the point where you're, Maybe it's from from our point of view of the popularity of the band Ten Thousand Maniacs just gaining, 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 and then you pick that time to to leave the band. What were the circumstances behind leaving Ten Thousand Maniacs? Well, the circumstances were that I joined the band when I was seventeen years old, and I'd made a decision that before I was thirty, I would change my my job. I was a career decision was being made, and um, and a life decision too. I'd been with the same group of people from the same town that that I was raised in and 12 years felt like a long time and 
I was stagnating. Yeah. And uh, I didn't feel like I was as stagnant when I was away from the band. I felt very energized. But when I would be around the band, I felt like the things that I wanted to do didn't coincide with the things anybody else wanted to do. And and after a while, I thought, why am I bothering? Because I'm, I could probably do this on my own. Now to step back just for a, just for a little bit when you uh, when you recorded the unplugged CD, um, the big hit off of it was because the night. Why the choice of that particular song? Well, the band had recorded and performed covers for years. As we were a cover band before we wrote our own stuff, and um, there would never was a concert that ever went by that we didn't do a cover. So um, we also did Let the Mystery Be uh, by Iris DeMent and um, Dallas by Jimmy Dale Gilmore in the Unplugged show. They just didn't make it to the top ten <laughs> somehow. Um, I actually met Patty Smith last week because we played the Tibet House Benefit, and um, she actually thanked me for recording the song. It was uh, interesting. Never thought when I was, you know, when I was 14, when I heard that song, that the day would come that I would actually meet the person who wrote it, and yeah. and that uh, we would talk, of, that we would both record it. And essentially, or that you thought that you'd ever turn it into a into a pop hit, you know. You know something that is ironic is um, that song was co-written by Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith, and further, did I not know ever that I would be managed by the same manager as Bruce Springsteen. It all was very coincidental. John Landau has only managed Bruce Springsteen. Their their relationship has been very exclusive. For years, he managed and produced him for a long time, over you know near twenty years. And I was the first artist that he's ever even considered working with, other than Bruce. So I took that as an amazing compliment because I think Bruce has a ton of integrity. I always felt like he he's not overexposed. You don't know that much about him, and he's not a gossip column kind of artist. And it, it's he's not like um, Michael Jackson or Madonna, where you feel like you have to run away from them. Like, yeah. how can I just get away from these people? <laughs> They're everywhere. I've never felt that way about Bruce. So I thought, when I was looking at managers, I thought um, he must be doing something right, and he must surround himself with people who understand what he wants, or or he would have been over overexposed and exploited beyond belief by now. He would be doing Pepsi commercials. What a wonderful song, Because the Night. 10,000 Maniacs from their MTV Unplugged album from 1993, written by Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen. And that would have been so cool. Imagine loving an artist as a teen, the way that Natalie Merchant loved Patti Smith, and then recording one of her songs. And not only does that song become a hit, but you meet the artist and they thank you for recording their song. And I'm sure they thank you for two <laughs> reasons. One, because you did a great version of their song. And two, because it means a lot to them financially, puts them on much firmer ground, especially an artist like Patti Smith, who was a much revered artist, but didn't have very many hits. And in fact, her hits were usually cover versions done by other people like that song. Yes, indeed. That, I think that was the biggest of all, though. I right? think so. Yes, for sure. This is Famous Lost Words, our first 90s edition. Time now for some 90s cool song and artist facts, okay? First of all, what about this band? I don't want no scrub. A scrub is a kind of game. 
from 1999. That's TLC with no scrubs. So TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool was one of the first albums to achieve diamond status in the United States, meaning 10 million copies sold. And Lisa yeah. Left Eye Lopez got her nickname because a guy once told her that he was very attracted to her left eye. <laughs> That's obscure and yet beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, the Fuji's second album, The Score, sold a mere 18 million copies. So what did they do? They broke up a year later. Ugh. I know. They did reunite in 2004, and Wycliffe presented them with a song, but Lauren Hill didn't like it, and she quit. The song, Hips Don't Lie, became a pretty big song for Wycliffe and Shakira. Oh, man. You know, I honestly think that is one of the tragedies in 90s music. Lauren Hill simply is a great artist, right? And she proved it with her own album, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, which won the Grammy, because I think she could be an absolutely massive superstar. Oh, I love that riff. 1991, Nirvana from the album Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit. And the baby boy who's on the cover of that famous album cover... Nevermind by Nirvana. He is now 30 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Right. Tom, in the 1990s, Boys to Men had four number one hits, including one with Mariah Carey. Those four songs held the number one spot for a combined total of 49 weeks. That is an astonishing number. From 1994, that's Boys to Men and one of their big hits, I'll Make Love to You. This is Famous Lost Words as we honor the 1990s. This is an odd fact, but it is a fact nevertheless. The Kinks' Ray Davies was given a co-writing credit on the song Push It by Salt and Pepper. <laughs> Why? Because of this line. <laughs> That sounds like you really got me. That's wild. I knew it sounded familiar at the time. That's Push It by Salt and Peppa from the 90s. Great stuff. Okay, I've got a cool band fact for you. Christopher, the third drummer for Oasis was Zach Starkey. That's Ringo's boy. Wow. <laughs> I'm trying to put that in perspective given the... Um disdain with which George Harrison held Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did he really? He was kind of rude, yeah. Oh. <laughs> not, a, not a fan, shall we say. You know, I think the first Oasis album, definitely maybe, that was voted the best British album of all time recently. And that includes all the Beatles albums. So it is interesting how critics and fans just absolutely love Oasis over there. And it is a distinctly British phenomenon, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah. But those songs are good. And that is a great album, and so is What's the Story, Morning Glory. Okay, hit me with another cool song fact, Mr. Jokic. Okay, Christopher. This song, have a listen to this. November Rain by Guns N' Roses from 1991. That is the longest song to reach the top ten 
in Billboard music history. That's eight minutes long. What? So that's the longest one to go to the top 10. So it's longer than Hey Jude? Uh, yes, it is. I think it's longer than Hey Jude by about 35, 40 seconds. And longer than MacArthur Park. Oh, God. And longer than American Pie. Apparently, it's all true. Okay, we need a bit of a palate cleanser here. Go for it. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. Great song, Sir Mix-a-Lot, Baby Got Back from 1992. He wrote that song, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) After watching the Super Bowl, he realized that the skinny women in all those commercials weren't anything like the women he knew in real life. That is a fun song. Trust me, Christopher, when I play that song, when I DJ, the dance floor goes nutty. It is, it's so much fun to dance to that song, and it's a lot of fun to play it. And it's profound. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go back a year to 1998. Britney Spears, Baby One More Time from 1998. What a debut for her. And what an odd song fact for us. The wardrobe for Britney Spears' iconic video for Baby One More Time was purchased at Kmart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's finish off with this song. That's song two by Blur from 1997. And that song was originally meant to be a parody of grunge music. Well, it worked, whatever it was. <laughs> it sure did. That was a big song, and it was a ton of fun. Once again, that was a great song to play at a party. And to me, to I my bet. mind, I, I like Blur, what I know of them, but that song sounded nothing like whatever else they put out. And so I believe that it was meant as a parody. Anyway, there you go. Some cool song facts from the 1990s on Famous Lost Words. That does it for our very first 90s episode of Famous Lost Words, but we assure you there will be more. We still have interviews with the likes of Shania Twain, Hanson, Celine Dion, Foo Fighters, Live, Alanis Morissette, Sheryl Crow, and many others. Our show was created, written, and produced by Tom Jokic. Executive producer, Sarah Cummings. The show was co-written by Christopher Ward, who is also responsible for our theme music along with his buddy, Rob Wells. Christopher's brand new album, Same River Twice, is out now. And I also want to give a shout out to Dale Smith, who did the bulk of the interviews in the 90s. He was definitely our go-to guy. I'm still in touch with Dale, and he'll be thrilled to know he was featured so prominently this week. In fact, he will probably ask us for residuals And Dale, none exist. (laughs) But thank you, Dale. That we give you. We can give you that an appreciation. That's right. Don't forget to get caught up on the more than eighty-five previous episodes of Famous Lost Words wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk to you next time. 